What's happening, y'all? This is Todd Wilson with another episode of Elevate Your Game. We're here today with an OG, a legend in the basketball world as far as uh, player development and just impact of the culture, Mr. Mark Edwards, a.k.a. Sifu, a.k.a. No air balls in 25 years. 25 years, no air balls. Woo, 25 years, no air balls. Yeah. Thank you. Welcome coming to the show, my brother. Thanks, man. Yes, sir. Uh, we love to start this show off with our wall of hoop movies. Uh, we're missing a couple. Missing a couple that you even probably produced or something like that. So <laughs> we'll get them up there. But what's your favorite hoop movie of all time and why? Favorite has to be He Got Game. And it's He Got Game because... It was filmed in Brooklyn, the Koyana area. Um, a lot of the ball players that actually participated in the the, the scene where they played in the park or whatever, mm -hmm. those are guys I grew up with. Oh, you know wow. what I'm saying? So that was dope watching that. And I love watching movies filmed in New York City, in Brooklyn especially, because it just reminds me of home, the culture. It's a beautiful place, the concrete jungle. You know what I'm saying? It was amazing. And um, I got love. I love Semi Pro. Um, I helped do the casting for Semi Pro, and I did the casting and uh, basketball choreography for Crossover, yeah. a movie that everybody hates, but it still made money. Yeah, you know man. what I'm saying? It's crazy. I think <laughs> they said no basketball movie has ever lost money. Really? Yeah. No, we need to make a, a basketball movie then. What are we doing here? No, for real, they've never <laughs> lost money. Okay, man, that's awesome. I actually, ha I do have the Crossover poster. Um, it's just uh, to make it even on the wall, I couldn't put it up yet until I get the other movies that we're missing. So yeah. I do have that because I remember it. And you're the reason that I was like, oh, I got to get a crossover because Mark is part of that. Yeah. So absolutely. Um, he Got Game is just so legendary. A lot of uh, our last few interviews are people that are from that generation of hoop. Mm -hmm. a, either uh, new people who were in the movie or when they were going through that process of committing to a school or whatever, they were in that same place that Ray Allen or Jesus Shuttlesworth was yeah. in that movie. Um, and I like to ask the question, um, are you picking big state or are you going somewhere else? If it I'm picking big state. Is it because get, first of all, I got to get my pops out of trouble, regardless <laughs> of like when you look at the movie and you look at what happened, um, you have to think about the relationship between men and women in the early 80s, late 80s and so forth. And that argument and how it happened and him pushing her was was a normal thing back in the days. Um, violence towards women was normal back then. And it took, I don't know, the culture took a real positive shift in saying no, like that's not acceptable. Mm -hmm. And I think that movie kind of brought light to it. Yeah. Like women were, you know, being they were fighting their husbands. I went through a traumatic situation with my family as well. Mother and father fighting each other. And it mm -hmm. wasn't mother and, like, wasn't father abusing mom. It was, whoever got that first punch off, won. <laughs> you know? It's Tina Turner in the back of the limo at the end of the movie. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's serious. You it, know? Yeah. And I think that brought light to that situation, but it also was about forgiveness. It was also yeah. about just a father's love for his kids. Um... Uh, redemption. Uh, can you ever come back from something like that? Mm -hmm. And that's that's so deep because you kind of want to put yourself in that situation. Could I forgive you if yeah. you hurt the most important person in the world to me? Right. You know. And it, it was good, man. It was good. I think the scenery. I think the color, the way he shot it. It was so dope to me. It was so dope. And yeah. then. You know, Lala, you know, she was she was all that. Everybody's like, yo, Lala. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? It really put her on the map as well. Um, so, no, nah, that was dope. Yeah, absolutely. Childhood favorite, one of my favorite movies. Yeah. We'll watch it every time it comes on regular TV. Yeah. And got to watch it at least once every three months just yeah. to remember. Just so. when you pass it on on TV and you're scrolling through the channels and you see it, you got to stop. You got to. Yeah, you got to stop. Because it's so deep. It, it's deep. It, it, from personal to... To the, the the tragedy of of of, um, of of spousal abuse, to redemption, to like we were talking about this the other day. Does that could that really happen? Mm. Like, really, you ask me, what would I pick? Like, could that really happen? Has it ever happened? Because That's we know question. that even though they're making making fun of it, has that really ever happened? And it's like kind of like blue chips. 
Oh, well, we know that happens. We know that happens, <laughs> but at what level? But has right. that ever happened? And did Spike Lee hear a story about that? And it's like, hmm, let me flip it yeah. and bring it to the big screen or whatever. So, I don't know. It's, it's, it, was too real for, it was too real for me. That's why I was drawn to it, because of all those interactions. The yeah. positive, the, 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 the negative, you know, and, and the outcome overall. So. Absolutely, absolutely. So, when did you fall in love with basketball? Um... I fell in love with it watching um, Dr. J, mm. watching Dr. J, watching Julius Irvin, and I just couldn't believe what he was doing with the big hands and just moving the ball around, doing all those things. But personally, as a player, I fell in love with it when it was something that I could not, I couldn't master. I was a football player. That was my best sport coming up in middle school. And I learned how to play basketball at eight years old. In New York City, we went to the Boys and Girls Club, and we played every sport. Every season, we played every sport. In baseball, I hit 39 home runs in the, in, in the seventh grade. In basketball, I averaged like 39 points a game as an eighth grader playing in the oh, local gosh. league in the Boys and Girls Club. But that didn't mean I was good, because <laughs> this is New York City. This is basketball. People love to argue, oh, this is not the mecca of basketball anymore. It will always be the mecca of basketball based on that arena. Yeah. But as far as from a cultural standpoint, basketball is everything to us. There's a court on like every five blocks. There's some kind of recreational court up. And in our neighborhood, we would build a court. We started playing in garbage cans. Like we put a garbage can on the wall here and a garbage can down there. And we play full court on a garbage can. And we would dunk and we would shoot jumpers and you got props in the neighborhood if you was good on a garbage can because we were too young to walk to the park by ourselves mm. because the park was dangerous. The walk to the park was dangerous. Wow. New York City is different. The people on your block, you live on one side of the street, you might not know the people across the street. It's a six, seven story building all the way down this block. Across the street, there's a six, seven story building across the street, all the way down that block. You might not know those people across the street. You really when you go around the corner, in, in you... In your building. In your building. And a few buildings there, you might have a friend from here and there. But you won't go around the corner, you don't know those people. Right. You might not be able to walk on that block. You might have to go turn the corner and then cross the street because on that side of the block, you can't walk by that building. That's so different from Because they're going to be like, yo... L.A., we have a whole, you know, we have the line, the border lines, too, but it's usually separated it's by... gang-related. Yeah, the railroad yeah. tracks or, uh, you know, a public building or something like that. No, with in us, Because you guys were stacked on top of each other, too. Yes. And so it was more dense, and, man, that is crazy. No, it's crazy because me playing football, I played play Pop One. I played for this team called the Skyhawks, Brooklyn Skyhawks. And um, I can remember just being dominant, knocking people off their feet, like <laughs> interceptions, whatever. I, I could play any position. They just put me at whatever position. And I remember coming from this place called the Parade Grounds in Brooklyn. The Parade Grounds were four big fields. So you had um, baseball, no, you had soccer, baseball, football, football. And then you had two basketball courts in the beginning of the field. Of, of the little area called Parade Grounds. And so you walk in there and your basketball course is going on. So we would go play Pop Warner and I'm coming out. I got my football equipment, I'm walking. And this is mid eighties. Mm. So you hear Eric B and Rakim, doom, 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 doom. Like you, you hear had your, you that. Had the intro music going into the field. Like literally because that's what we did. We played music outside. So you had the DJs outside, and I'm like, damn, music. It's a crowd. It's crazy. People on the gates, everything. I'm like, man, I just finished killing people over here on this football field, but everybody's there watching them play basketball. So I'd stop, and I'd watch, and I'd see guys from my neighborhood, dudes that were just straight hoopers. Yeah. And the music, the atmosphere, the crowd. Like the cheers, everybody wants to be cheered for. Yeah. So I was like, I want that. Mm. So going into high school, I was like, put all my energy into basketball. You know, what high, I played, school, what high school did you go to? Went to Canarsie High School, Canarsie okay. Blue Chiefs. 
Um, and uh, John Sally went there. World Be Free went there. I got a World Be Free story for you. That's so, going to mess you up. All right. Hold the World Be. So John Sally is actually the reason that we're in this studio. Really? Check this out. So my homeboy rents a uh, office two uh -huh. doors down. Got connected with uh, John Sally's production team somehow. Mm -hmm. And so John was using a room in that office mm -hmm. for his podcast that he does. And now, fast forward a few months, he, they're trying to expand this, his production. And so this is an extra room inside. Mm -hmm. This is John Sally's studio. Dope. This room right here is this big room. They're building a stage and all this stuff. And this is an extra office that my homeboy was like, hey, if you're doing a podcast, you fit right in. Perfect. There you go. <laughs> Kamasi. <laughs> yeah, he's from, uh, is he from Bayview? I think he's from Bayview Projects. Yeah, so nah, John. It's crazy because I remember when John, we were in high school, and John had his big coming out party. He dunked on Patrick Ewing or something like that. It was crazy. <laughs> and he just got just famous. Mm. Of that dunk, that him playing and so forth. Because I don't think he people looked at him as being a pro coming out of high school. He was real smart. He was seven foot, you know, lanky. He had great movements. Um, a family of ball players, and um, he took it to a different level. So, yeah. nah, shout out to John. Absolutely. World be free story yet? World be free story. Yeah. Real simple. Um, and so this is to educate all the trainers out there as well. Um, so I'll ask trainers, um, who invented the step back? Hmm. Let me ask you who invented the step back. <laughs> who invented the step back? The what earliest? players, whose movement was that? Whose movement was step back? Yeah. I can remember, I guess the first time me really seeing it consistently mm -hmm. was, for me, it was Stefan Marbury, actually, Stephon. where I was okay. watching. So I'm, I'm a little, you know, I'm young, but I didn't get into basketball until I was like 11. Mm -hmm. So I was catching the tail end of the Michael Jordan era mm -hmm. and then rolling into, you know, Kobe and, and modern. But... I was always, my first experience with basketball was actually the N1 mixtapes mm. themselves. Like, that's when I came up. I wasn't watching the NBA. I was watching N1 mixtapes first. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. Yes, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to get into that. And so, <laughs> and so um, you know, Stephon Marbury, even though he wasn't in that, but he was the NBA player who, for me, played that style. Yeah. And so it was the step back and fakes, but I'm sure that uh, somebody else started that. So um, <coughs> the Step back was not really called a step back. It's actually called it. It's it's not really called that move. It's not really called a move at all. But uh, it was actually called the Kiki move, mm. and it was um, taught by a guy named Pete Newell, who was the big man trainer for years. Um, years he would for years he would take big men and go to Hawaii and do a big man camp during the summertime, and he would teach all the big men in the NBA. They'd be in Hawaii, of course, beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, atmosphere and you know temperature and whatever. What and years would, is this? This is the 80s. Okay. He would do this in the 80s. And he would teach the Kiki move, which was Kiki Vandeweghe's move where he would create space by, he could sidestep in any direction. Um, this way, this way, back. I mean, angle this way, angle this way, straight back. And he called it Kiki move because it was what Kiki Vandeweghe used to get open because um, Kiki was a great shooter, but he wasn't athletic enough to really get a shot off. So he had to figure out a way how to get his shot off. So I always ran with this and I was like, okay. So one day I was at, um, Adidas nation and Kiki Vander was there. He's working for the NBA, whatever. And I sat down, was talking to him. I said, how did you come up with the Kiki move? And he's like, that's not my move. I'm like, but it's named after. <laughs> yeah. And he said, no, I got that move from watching World Be Free. Mm. And I was like, World Be Free? And I thought, oh my God. So one day in high school, World Be Free came back to the school and was playing with us, scrimmaging with the high school team. And I was guarding him and he drove straight line. Like he, he was like 15 feet away from the basket going towards the baseline. And I'm with him all the way. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I got him. And all of a sudden, he disappeared. <laughs> so what he did was he stepped back. He drove straight, pushed off, stepped back, and was like, we didn't have a three-point line in high school. We didn't get the three-point line in New York City until 1987, 88. I graduated 86, 87. Okay. So he was damn near out of bounds and took a jump shot. So I'm sliding with him, sliding with him, and then I ain't get way over there. I'm like, yo, he's magical. You know, I thought NBA players were magical. I'm like, how did he disappear and get there? He used a step back. So 
that right there is just basketball information that you should have. Like, you should yes. have a dictionary of whose move was this, who created Texas two-step, Tim Harway, one-two. Yeah. Still haven't found anyone that can replicate that move. Um, Kareem Skyhook. We still haven't found anybody that can do that on a regular basis and just score the ball. George Gerving's finger roll. We still yeah. haven't found anybody that can do that. You know what I'm saying? So, Jelly fam ain't that? No, I'm messing with you. Okay. <laughs> Dave, it's the concept. But not, but yeah, this concept, but not like him. He yeah. was, you know, from, from the free throw line. Right. Which is crazy because yeah. the finger roll was a big thing for us. Dr. J would finger roll. Everybody would finger roll. Clyde Drexler... He would finger roll, you know, mm-hmm. from, from distance. Yeah. It's not even a shot anymore, really. Guys, you know, they, you know, it's a lot of different angles. Kyrie then messed these kids up. If Kyrie, <laughs> me- if Steph Curry messed these kids up with jump shots, Kyrie messed them up with layups. So I've I seen this recently, actually. Curry saying he didn't mess them up because he actually made the shots. He said it's the Nick Youngs of the world who turning around doing this. <laughs> not my fault. And this took that dumb like, shot. Curry was like, That's a fact. I didn't do this. <laughs> That's a fact. You took that dumb shot. I make those. You don't. Yeah. No, that's awesome. So you went uh, high school, um, then through high school. So did you have player development during high school? Was somebody actually teaching you skills or was it just hooping? For me, it was watching the game and emulating what they did on the court. So I would watch, for me to dribble the ball up the court, I would watch Maurice Cheeks and Rory Sparrow because they were the guards that would dribble the ball up the court, turn their back, so they'd play the angles. They'd go to the corner, turn their back, get to the other corner, turn their back, get to half court, and then set the offense up. So if you weren't an amazing ball handler, you had to play it that way. You had to play at the guard the ball. If you watch Magic Johnson, if he was bringing the ball up the court, he would walk you down, have you on his hip. And Mark, Mark Jackson is the one who, Mark Jackson Mark did Jackson it very did it well, well, too, yeah. yes. Yeah. Like, that was it. But, like, guys like Pearl Washington didn't have to do that. Rob Strickland didn't have to do that. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? He just, ah, excuse me, and right. get where you want to get to, and then still the offense. So, watching the game, going outside, practicing those movements. Um, also, I had um, a gentleman at the Boys and Girls Club that showed me the exact same move, how to do it, when to do it. Um, how not to get picked doing it because you had guys who once you turned your back if you hung the ball behind you they could pick you because the ball's on your hip so all I had to do is tap it away push you out the way and go get the ball so guys like Derek Harper were great at doing that he was amazing because he'd watch you for three quarters and then in the fourth quarter it's crunch time and he'd just pick you I've seen Mm. him pick somebody's pocket three straight times for game winning layups and so forth so I was very cognizant of of those movements so I'll just practice watching those moves. I used to try to shoot like Larry Bird because it was amazing. I couldn't do it. I don't know how he got that <laughs> shot off. Then I would try to shoot like Andrew Tony because, you know, the Boston Strangler. You know, these are all names some of you might have to look up. But yep. if you look at the footage, these guys were amazing. Yeah. Um, I even tried to shoot like Jamal Wilkes because okay. I wanted to be able to shoot the ball. And I'm like, these guys make shots. I want to, I'm just going to emulate what they do. It didn't work. So one day I'm in the park with my game. And one of um, one of my childhood friends, a guy named Keith, Keith Golden. I'm giving Keith props now. He's going to be like, I told you. I taught you how to shoot, you know. But um, he went to a Bishop Ford High School. It was a private school, Catholic school in, in New York City. And in those schools, they taught them fundamentals. So he had a fundamentally pure jump shot. Mm-hmm. So he's watching me shoot one day in the park at nighttime by myself. And he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> he's like, No. So he like came over to me and was like, this is how you shoot. It was like proper here, elbow straight. This I said, oh, this is how Michael Jordan shoots. He's like, yeah. <laughs> Duh. That's what elbow, <laughs> yeah, push through, create a window. It was, it was perfect. And from that day, I was hooked on jump shots and so forth. So that was my development. My development was always watching other people and just taking bits and pieces of what they did. You know, like I had Pearl Washington, you know. He was a mentor, so watching his crossover, watching his hesitation, crossovers and all that, we tried to emulate that. We had um, another one of my child friends, uh, a guy named Dow Flowers. His brother, his older brother named LaVon, showed him the in and out cross, you know, mm-hmm. and that was Pearl's move. So Pearl showed it to me, Dow showed it to me. Dow's killing me with it. Mm-hmm. His brother LaVon is killing everybody with it. Um, we had a guy named Juice, uh, Anthony Joseph from Brooklyn who I thought was the creator of this move, the up fake. 
Mm. You know, the Hezzy's Upfake. But it was a guy named Spicius Kilpatrick. Spicy. His mama Spicious. named him that? Spicius okay. Kilpatrick. <laughs> from Coney Island. Went to Lincoln High School. He was a point guard mm. back in the days. His big man was uh, a guy named Kenny Parker. DJ Kenny Parker. K.I. Restaurant's little brother. Mm. Who was another one of the guys that I played with in the Boys and Girls Club. So it's crazy how basketball is so big in New York, but it's a very small, close-knit group of people where yeah. you learn things and movements and everything are passed from from this person to that person and from that person to that neighborhood and from that neighborhood to that person playing AAU. And then that person goes out of state, plays AAU, does the move on somebody, and somebody looks like, oh, I'm going to do that move. Yeah. So that's how the game it's, was filtered out. It reminds me of hip-hop. Yes. It's how hip-hop spread, right? Yeah. Started in New York with it and, you know, how I got out to the West Coast and how I got to the Everybody puts South. their own spin on things. Yeah. And so nowadays these kids have YouTube. So they, they see the movements, but they don't really understand why. Mm. And that's a problem because you have trainers that are skipping steps and teaching them option three when they haven't mastered option one. Yep. So for me... Development was watching, paying attention, and this is me watching somebody do a move. But how did he get to that move? Okay, hit him with one and shot, then one and shot, then one, two. Because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So if I have a move that I can do on you, I'm not gonna change, I'm not gonna do another move until I you stop this move. So now I see you up on that. Oh, I'm gonna go someplace else now. So that's Tim Hardaway. You think about it. Tim Hardaway made it to the Hall of Fame with one move. Yeah. He had one move. Think about that. And he's regarded as one of the best ball handlers of all time. He had one move. And he could finish really well. Yeah. Yeah. But one move. So it was, think about it. And the setup was come down, jump shot. Come down, between the legs, blow by you. Come down, between the legs, jump shot. Between the legs, crossover. Yeah. And the crossover would be one, two. So they do it where guys, they run into a crossover, they're moving forward, bringing themselves closer to the defense, so the move never works because you're no getting close to, to the defense. Directions. Exactly. Yep. Hardaway will hit you one, two, and go laterally, and he's watching you. So there's so many intricate pieces to movement and yeah. these moves that trainers don't know because Well, the cone they teachers don't know. And that's another problem. <laughs> the cone. So... You should never use cones. Why? Because now you never learn how to step across a defender. Because the cone is this big or this big. A defender's defensive width is like this wide from one foot to the next. So what I use, I'll use two chairs, face them back forward me, and I'll place them down. What about the pop-up defenders? The pop-up defenders are good if you use two of them. Because you still have to emulate going by a defensive stance. Got it. So it needs to be a wide width. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I said wide width. <laughs> <laughs> we can edit that. No. <laughs> and, but no, but I'm saying, but then also the space you need to get around someone. Yeah. You can't just go by someone right there on top of the person. You have to do with more than arm distance away. Why? You need room to get by him. You can't just, okay, he's just not going to move. No. So with training, there's a lot of small details that people miss. But I've been doing this 29 years. So for me, I've failed, I fixed it, I failed, I fixed Mm -hmm. it, I failed, and the game changed every five years. Yes. No, I think it's important to see that there's not many trainers who've been doing it that long and staying with, keeping up with the time, right? As you know, basketball is becoming, the the kids are becoming more skilled and more athletic. And so Mm -hmm. that's what's the difference in their training is, is like they know almost too much so how do we dumb it down and teach them the, the, the one two? Exactly. And then how many people have done it for as long as you and stayed in the game and in see. a relevant way? You up to it's twenty nine years and up to this year, you're still doing pre draft training for kids. Like you're still preparing them for the NBA, and I think that's testament to you and your continued growth. And um, you know, if anybody follows him on Twitter, man, he 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 lets it be known how he feels about these things. But it's coming from a place of pure basketball yeah of love of the game and just listen to what he has to say because i have because i was one of those trainers who was skipping steps and one i I'll, we met i opened the gym for him for him to train a player that's mm-hmm. how we met we were connected through kenny clark shout out kenny and um 
that's how we met. And I just wa- I just watched. I just watched, and I'm like, okay. And I didn't know who you were. What like? Kenny's <laughs> like, oh, this is the best trainer in the world. No. And I'm like, all right, let me see. <laughs> I'll throw that tag out there all the time because, you know, I, as a as a competitor, as a basketball player, yeah. as an athlete, if you don't think once you get to a certain level that you're the best, you're not competing to be the best. Yeah. So innately, you have to be like, I'm the best. Prove me wrong. Mm-hmm. Like. And I know my OG gonna get mad at me. My man Horace, Horace Naismith in New York. Not New York, he's in Atlanta, I'm sorry, from New York. But like he um he did a camp uh was last year or whatever. Last year, a couple of summers ago. Um he does the junior all American camp. Okay. Yeah. And I took my man Frank, Frank Robinson, um, with me, um, out to Atlanta to, you know, work the camp and so forth. We actually did a couple of events together, uh, Adidas camp or whatever, and we did the junior all American camp. And I think the camp started at, we were supposed to be there at 12. So we running late. And he's like, man, man we're going to be late. I'm just like, nah, we all right. He's like, what you mean? They start at 12. I said, we'll get there like 12.08. <laughs> I said, I know he's going to be mad at me, but I want to make a grand entrance. I want the drills to already have started. I want the parents to already be seated. And I want to come in and I want to shake up the room. And that's exactly what happened. He was like, man, you crazy. So we walk in there. Horse like, man, you late. I'm like, my bad, my bad, OG. I got you, though. I got you. So there's a guy running the drill. He's running the pick and roll drill. And I'm like, mm, stop. Shut it down. I said, this isn't right. You have to sprint into the screen. You got to get your guy below the screen, run him off the screen if we're going to do a traditional pick and roll. NBA, does, they don't do it like that anymore. Because the, the bigs are in drop coverage. But I'm teaching high school kids, the bigs aren't in drop coverage, guys are gonna switch. Right. So gotta walk before you crawl. Yes. So let me show you this correctly. And I made I turned the energy up and they're doing stations. So all the parents are over here on this side. I picked the side I wanted to be on. I wanted to be in front of the parents. So my energy is different. I'm bringing noise. I'm like, yeah, I'm bringing expertise. I'm breaking it down to them, and we have a bunch of like all Americans there. Uh, once they were finished with the with that um, that drill, they had to go to another station. So kids finished, they went to another station. Then another group of kids came in, so we're teaching them and so forth. And then I started noticing this station kept getting bigger. So instead of the kids leaving and going to another station, they'd leave. And circle back and come right back to our station. So before we knew, we had like 50 kids in the group. And Frank is looking at me like, you crazy. I'm just like, when they like it, they love it. Yeah. Because it's energy. It's You have to bring something to these kids. Yes. Because you have so many people who are trainers. But what did you go through? Who did you learn from? Do you understand this concept totally? Do you understand how to develop? There's a difference between development and mm, training. Man. Two different things. Yes. Everybody's not able to develop. Yep. You can train. You go. Actually, there's development, there's training, and there's workout guys. Yep, man. Most people are workout guys or trainers. Yes. Very few people are developers. You're a developer. You work with young kids. Mm-hmm. You have to. Whew, now I know you get frustrated because you work with young kids. They want to emulate what they see on television every time. And you're like, no. I have to tell kids, listen. When you go home and you tell your parent, mommy, daddy, I don't think the coach likes me. He be pointing me out in practice all the time. I tell a kid, he don't like you. He really don't. He might like you as a person, but he don't like you as a basketball player. You might stink as a basketball player. You're (laughs) selfish. You don't care. Like, What are you doing besides trying to score the basketball? Are you rebounding? Are you playing defense? Are you making the extra pass? And then every parent assumes that a, a, a coach should run plays for your kid. No. He gives you playing time. You can score the ball in multiple ways. You can get an offensive rebound and a putback. You can make your free throws. You can be ready on the wing and a triple threat and be able to do a simple catch and shoot. Play you defense, can, get steals. You can steals. play defense, get a steal, get a layup. Man. You can sprint the floor, catch and shoot three. They're paying people millions of dollars to be a 3 and D player, Man. which is 
being able to sprint, catch, shoot, and defend. You don't even have to be a great defensive player individually. Just be a good defensive player, solid, and be a great help side guy. And you're going to make it to the NBA if you have a certain level of athletic ability and IQ. So the game is simple, but the fact that so many steps are being skipped yep. because people are watching the video instead of the game. These kids don't watch games anymore. Nope. They watch highlights. So yep. you're watching a move or moves that occurred within 10% of the game, you have those moves. The other 90% of the game is simple catch and shoot. Sprint, catch, shoot, shot fake, one dribble, two dribble, drive and kick, yep. DHO. How do you get open? How do you get open? <laughs> yep. Guys, I'm working out guys and they're, there's no defender on them and they're running and they're stutter stepping. I'm like, you do know there's an athlete chasing you, right? <laughs> so why would you stutter step? Because stutter step means you're slowing down. You're trying to run through a screen. You have to run athletic movements. So there's a lot to be fixed. Yes. And the problem is a lot of kids, a lot of parents, they don't understand that part. And they want the, they want the fireworks. They want the, the hot move. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, that's not the game. No, they want, they want the benefits of the work without putting the work in. Exactly. They want to be my kids undersized. So I'm going to be, my kid's going to be like Steph Curry, but you didn't see all the fundamentals and time Steph Curry put it on the court with his dad, who was in the NBA, around NBA players all the time, where all they did was practice fundamentals, especially then, back in that day. That's what it was about. Mm -hmm. And that's why I tell parents all the time, like, I promise you Steph Curry did nothing but form shooting when he was this age. I promise you he did nothing but stationary mm -hmm. dribbling. You, can't, you can see when he upped his handle. Mm -hmm. it, it's literally on YouTube where he's an accelerate sports performance or whatever. That's when he started doing all the tennis ball and the light touches and, you know, just expanded his game because the fundamentals were set through college, though, yes. like all the way through college, pretty much. Yeah. So, so think about that. To, hmm, to make it to the NBA, you want to have what I call plug and play games. You have a game that can be plugged into any system. And you have to start that in high school. As a high school player, a lot of these kids don't make it at the next level because when they go to college, the assumption is that this coach is going to let me play the same way I played in high school. Well, in high school, you play against 99% of the kids that will not play Division One basketball. Yep. So you're in the 1%. Only 1% of the kids playing high school basketball will play Division I, 1%. And that number is going down for high school seniors because now with the new transfer world, guys don't have to sit out. Less high school seniors are getting scholarships. Right. So if you're playing against the 1%, that means there's other guys already there that are better than you or on the same level as you or were on the same level as you when you were coming out of high school. And those guys have been eating three, four meals a day. Protein shakes, uh, water. They've been. They. I gotta weigh you. I gotta check your body fat. Um, you have a strength trainer. You have a nutritionist, yep. and you actually are understanding the culture, the basketball culture that we have at the school. So you're way behind going in as a freshman. So if your game cannot plug directly into that system, you got a problem, because you think they're gonna put the ball in your hands. Mm -hmm. And it's a funny conversation I had with. Um, I'm a name drop. Juwan Howard, uh, probably a couple months ago. And I said, man, they don't realize these coaches have wives. And man. these coaches' wives, you know, they might have the young, pretty wife who likes to dress and likes to go to Fashion Week in Paris. She going to be at the game looking like, mm-mm, baby, mm -mm, you got to get rid of him. He going to get you fired. Mm -mm, he going to mess up my dream. He going to mess up my plans. I'm trying to fly on a private jet to go to Fashion Week. Or I'm trying to buy this new car. And mm -mm, that boy right there, you got to get rid of him. Mm. She not going to let you mess up the family money. Right. Because you want to come in here and act like this is Douglas High School. This is not your high school. This is Michigan. He started laughing. He said, man, my wife the same way. He said, she ain't, she ain't look, she give, give me that look like, mm. You better, you know. I love that perspective. You never hear of the outside influence coming from the wife. But really? Good, smart men have wives that they listen to. That's so right. That is uh, like, baby, <laughs> number five, <laughs> like, <laughs> number five, <laughs> send him home. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But that's the real part of it. Just like I was saying earlier, coach seemed like he don't like you. He don't. 
You're going to cost him his job. Right. What did uh, Ty Lu say uh, a month ago? He said, um, man, I ain't turned the ball over not one time. <laughs> I ain't missed no jumpers. <laughs> they fired Molly Williams, who's a great coach. Right. Molly ain't missed near jumper. None. He ain't turned the ball. He Who you throwing the ball to? Man, I ain't throwing the ball. That was you. Right. So the reality is these coaches potentially have the same mental issues that the players have. Mm. Mental health is a thing. It's not just a thing for that classification yeah. or those people. It's a situation for everyone. So you, that wife, you causing her mental health stress. <laughs> like, baby, 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 you got to get rid of him. And the coach is going through it because literally his job is on the line. If I can get this precocious 17, 18-year-old to act right, to yeah. play in the system, to play for something bigger than himself. And if he plays the game the right way, he will get rewarded with a professional career. What That is the biggest part is how to get kids and their parents more so to understand that. It's like you don't need to average 30 to get to the level you're trying to get to. Most of the point guards that are in the league now in high school average 15 to 16 points, six to seven assists, mm -hmm. but were winners. They won with other people around them. Now, they went on the NBA and they, they get buckets now. Mm -hmm. What, how do, how do you, let's start this, how about this? I have a, a two-year-old son right now. Mm -hmm. I'm giving him over to Mark Edwards right now and give you three minutes. What's the blueprint to get my kid to the NBA? The simple blueprint is engulf him in the game. Take him to basketball games with you. Take him to the gym with you. Let him run around and let him fall in love with it on his own. Um, put the basketball in his crib. You know, this right here. You know, when he come in the office. That, this, is, this is his basketball. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> and he goes, he's going to dunk it. He's going to shoot it. And he's sitting in your lap watching games. He will fall in love with it. And it's just that simple because this is a game that it's, it's changed because of the parental influence. The parental influence is parents telling these kids, well, you should play for this AAU team because of this. Well, how do you know? <laughs> Did you play AAU? Were you good in high school? Right. The kids that jump from AU team to AU team are the kids that transfer college to college. And I had to do a stat with a good friend of mine, uh, Dane, my man Dane Irvin. And we talked about this years ago, and we pulled up the stats on how many kids actually get drafted into the NBA once they transfer schools. And it's a very small list. It's a very small list. So you're talking 20 years, you might have 25 players. You're talking about transferring colleges. Transferring colleges. Mm. But that behavior starts in high school. Right. You know, so a lot of times parents think that, well, if it doesn't work here, I'll just go to a different high school. Well, there are situations where if a kid's not getting a fair, a fair break and he's a good kid, that maybe he can get an opportunity someplace else. Right. But you don't want to make this a trend, which is why it's important to have plug and play game, which is... I can put my offense or the way I play the game into any team and I can help that team win. Yes. Helping team win does not mean you scoring the basketball all the time. Helping team win means I'm making an extra pass. I'm playing defense. Like, what are you known for outside of making a shot? And we could talk about NBA players in that way. But for me personally, I'm not going to get on any platform and, and, and disparage NBA players. Because those dudes yeah. are, are demigods. The 450. They're the 450. <laughs> the 450. The talented 450. Yeah. How dare you? Like, I'm in social rooms and I hear a guy, somebody, oh, he sucks. Peyton Pritchard is the 12th man on the Boston Celtics and dropped 92 in a pro-am. That boy cold, man. He dropped 92. <laughs> he could have probably scored 100 if he wanted to. If he just wanted to be like... Right. Let me just do this and hold up that 100 thing. <laughs> you like you we are mere mortals compared to what those guys do. Like I trained Jordan Poole. I mean, working with Jordan for three years. Damn, another name drop. Sorry, Jordan. 
I don't. That's what this show is for. We're, I, not, we're not sorry, Jordan. Come on the show. Go ahead. <laughs> and it's funny because they say, oh, he sucked this year. He averaged 20 points a game off the bench. I'm like, go back and look at NBA history and find how many players have ever averaged 20 points per game off the bench. He's in an elite class. Yeah, Hall of Famers. He's in a class <laughs> where at Golden State, he ended the season one time scoring over 20 points, 20 plus consecutive games. The only other people in Golden State Warrior history to do that were Will Chamberlain, <laughs> Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, Jordan Poole. You not, can't, even, not even Clay. Not even Clay. Man. Definitely not Draymond. Right. You know what I'm saying? Hate intended. You know what I'm oh, saying? Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, we want smoke. But no, no, we no, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. No, nah, but seriously. Um you yeah. can't disrespect these players in public. Right. I don't care. Even if you're an ex player, and I see a lot of ex players are gaining clout by doing that, I don't approve. I don't approve. Because you were once that player, and when you were being talked about on television, you didn't like it, and they don't like it either. They're human beings just like everybody else. So yes. I'll, I'll never do that. You yeah. know what I'm saying? So I got to give them their respect. I don't care. Because we've seen those guys that people think can't shoot hit 20, 30 jumpers in a row. We're like, well, I know you can do that. Well, that's not my job. That's it. My job is to set screens. Mm. Josh Powell, who played for the Lakers back in the days. Yeah. Josh was Kobe's guy. Josh is from Georgia. After he finished playing, um, I worked Josh out. I promise you, he hit about 33s in a row from different spots. I'm like, when did you, what the? That was my job. Yeah. I learned a valuable lesson. But I've always known that. I've, like, pretty much every NBA player can dunk. Right. You know, you don't know that until you. Not just dunk. They, like, take off. Yeah. No steps. Just. Yep. No matter how small you think they are. I had uh, the Wright brothers, um, uh, DeLon and, and Darrell here mm. the other day, and we were just talking about how, how Darrell, how'd you play for 15 years, 10 years in the league? Uh, DeLon, how are you staying in the league? Both took way different routes, right? Darrell out of high school, DeLon, junior, or prep school, junior college, university, then the NBA. Mm -hmm. And that's what it's like, man, we, we carved out, I know what I do. I play defense. I got to set the offense up. That's what DeLon does. Darrell's like, I'll shoot, you know? I, mm -hmm. <laughs> I had to shoot and play defense. What are you great at? That's it. What is the one thing that you're great at doing? Yeah. And so you start to figure that out, you think, in high school? Because, so for, as a developer, right, and I've seen it multiple ways. I've seen kids who came out of middle school, you know, my, that's where my focus is, came out of middle school and you could pretty much say, okay, this is the type of player you're going to be probably your whole career. But mm -hmm. I also had kids come in to a high school setting as a sophomore becoming a junior, totally transforming their game for them to become a high major division one player. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't what they were before. When do you start to figure out what your, you know, your, your role is? Uh, you want to figure that out based on the culture of basketball. What are coaches looking for? So me, I, I figured all this stuff out afterwards, after I stopped bouncing the ball and so forth. And I really started looking at first, I was just, let me develop people's skill set to the highest level possible. Mm. Jump shot, handle, passing, athletic ability, um, movements. So I'm really good with uh, speed and agility. Uh, at my highest point, I had a 45-inch vertical. Me too. So I was I a leaper. I would, yeah. do a, I would do a thousand toe raises every day. I would run the stairs with a 20-pound weight vest. Uh, I would do push-ups, sit-ups. I would do everything possible to just train my body to be the best athlete possible. And once I lost that leaping ability, I was just like, nah, the game, I, I couldn't play ground level. It didn't work for me. Right. Guys can. I couldn't. I needed, I needed to be able to run and jump over you. The object of basketball is to run around you or jump over you and put the ball in the basket or get around you and set somebody up so they can put the ball in the basket. But putting the ball in the basket is, you know, that's our thing. You know, and once I couldn't do it, you know, I stepped back and I started focusing on other people. And I started so focusing on... When that trend, we talked about high school a little bit, college. So where, uh, where'd you go to college? And then what was that transition like from college to training? 
for me, I went to um, Bakersfield College, and it was a good situation at first. Then I got hurt. Mm. I think at first I was averaging like 27 a game. And then once I got hurt, my average dropped severely. I still had a bunch of D1s hitting me up. It's crazy because uh, my old college roommate, Wiley, Wiley Minifee, Wiley, because uh, back in the days, we didn't have cell phones. You had to use a payphone and call people collect or, you know, uh, we would break into the coach's office. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's crazy because one day he broke, they broke into the coach's office and he came back with a bunch of letters. And they were all for me. They were opened up and they were from all kinds of schools. Michigan State, Rhode Island, uh, Oregon State, Oregon. And they were all addressed to me but being sent to the coach. Well, the coach wasn't having a good time that season. He had a lot of personal stuff going on. So he kind of took it out on us. And I even had scouts calling up there looking for me. And he wasn't very helpful. So I took it upon myself, reached out to Oregon State, and went out there for about a week and a half. Mm -hmm. And I went there because I knew a guy that was going to go there. His name was Ernest Killiam. Um, they called him May May. I think he went to Dominguez High School. Yeah. He was nice. Yeah. And... He had a stroke, um, I think that summer, and I was like, man, he ain't coming to school here. So I left, went home. I was I was homesick anyway. It just wasn't gonna make sense for me. And he still went back to school or whatever. And you know, unfortunately, he ended up passing at school that year. Uh, had another stroke or whatever. Um, he's a legend for real. He was a legend. I mean, he was a good friend. I used to play against him in the the California um, rec leagues or whatever. So myself, I was kind of lost, and so myself, I come from um, a pretty affluent background. My family did well financially or whatever, but the other side of my family, you know, was kind of in the street. So I hung with my fam, you know, mm. you know, the curiosity <laughs> of um, hip hop, drug culture, you know, hanging with those guys. That was a thing for me. It was a thing for a lot of people in New York City. So going back home. I find myself on the the wrong side of a local, like a war, mm. and I need to get out of the city. So I had a, another my friend Daryl Flowers who I grew up with. He was going to school at uh, Georgia College in Milledgeville, Georgia, and I was like, <laughs> so I went out there, paid my own freight, went out there. The coach was put me on scholarship. He couldn't. Those things I wanted. I'm like, man, I'm a, I'm a D1 athlete. You supposed to be able to do this for me and that for me. They couldn't do it. It's a D2. I was like, I ain't playing for y'all. I'll just go to school here, pay my way, and work on my game. So I started working on my game. I work on my game like six hours a day. And I was jumping over the moon, you know, and every <laughs> time I'd go home and kill in the pro-ams or whatever. But my knee gave out on me, and I was like, you know what? That's enough for basketball. So I started focusing on other things. So that's where came the uh, and one situation. Uh, met them when I left school and moved to Atlanta. They were showing off their um, prototypes for Stephon Marbury, who at the time was at Georgia Tech. And I would just kind of open some doors around the city. I was working for Champ Sports. Was oh, the mixtape out already? No. Okay. No, because this was 96 when I met them. The mixtape wasn't out yet, but they were trying to create the shoe for Steph. And... Once he got in the league or whatever uh, that year, one of the things that we talked about was creating a team of hired guns, guys that would promote the trash talking T-shirts that were on that, that, that they made. It was very popular because that was my thing. I'm like, you guys got these trash talking T-shirts. You should have people promoting that, like who emulate that those guys, those figures. Let's bring those figures to life. That was my idea. And the first and one team actually came out of run and shoot. But the team didn't play the way, talk junk the way, or look the way that those t-shirts did. Right. So I made a phone call and they kind of cut that program and they was like, let's just do it up here. So they invested and did it in New York City where they grabbed main event, Shane, all those guys, and they started doing games. And Set Free came on board and I think Set Free, or I don't know if Set Free is the one that did it, but he created 
put the music behind the skip to my little mixtape, started yep. cutting that stuff up or whatever. Mm -hmm. The crazy thing about basketball is basketball is so rhythmic that um, hip hop movement and regular movement is one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. So you could put any music, hip hop music behind it and it automatically syncs up. Yeah. Like people think, people actually look at the tape and say, Okay, put it there. No, you just play the music and our movements sync up to the music. I make little mixtapes on Instagram all the time. I'm, I, I'm tone deaf and have no musical anything. Yeah, people yeah. think it's like this thing. I'm like, no, it's our rhythm, you yeah. know. So that was a success. So when they were like, well, let's do a tour. Because they did like, I think, two or three events in New York City that, that did really well. They called me and was like, yo, we, um, we want to do a tour uh, in Atlanta. We want to come through there. At first, um, I was going to let it be part of an event I was doing called NBA Point Guard Weekend. This is when the NBA um, wasn't as, the NBA All-Star Weekend wasn't popping like it mm -hmm. is now. Hip-hop hip -hop culture changed the NBA. Now, the NBA All-Star Weekend is uh, is like corporate freaknik. It's, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I literally have a cartoon of a woman shooting a baby like this, the baby, you know, like as a jump shot, like a ball, saying, I'm going to have to go to NBA All-Star Weekend, <laughs> take that baby, you know, F them kids. You know? <laughs> um, but the, the, the marriage of hip-hop and the NBA really changed things. Yeah. And I think they took a lot of that from the and one situation. So... With the animal, animal mistake blowing up, me introducing hot sauce to Anne One, and I think we had a good six-year run, seven-year run. Um, and that was enough for me, you know. Of course, I'm not featuring any of the the documentaries because I actually know the truth about everything, you mm. know. I, it's unfortunate, but um, so there was more to it than I was. In there's the a lot more to it, you know. I even what would you what would you if you can say in a sentence. Well, or, you know, a few sentences, like, what was it that stopped the N1 movement? You know, what what happened? I know the corporate giants came in and they tried to take something that was so organic and authentic and, of course, commercialize it, monetize it. And so... One of the uh, MC said, was it, let me see, who was it? He said, hip-hop started out in the park. We used to do it. You know, I forget all the words, but hip hop started out in the park. You keep things simple. If you kept us in small buildings, 3,500, 5,000 people, we will sell out that building. We'll have three, 4,000 people outside, and they're dying to see what happened inside. The first game we did in Atlanta, we did at Morris Brown. Morris Brown held 3,500 people. They were selling tickets at $5 a ticket. They weren't used to selling tickets. The other uh, games they did out of the state, um, they gave away tickets. I was like, nah, I'm going to give away no tickets. We're going to mm -hmm. sell. So, like, at the end of the event, they had all this cash. I was like, what are we going to do with this? I'm like, take it home. They're like, all right, we're not ready to take it home. I said, you better figure it out. <laughs> so they figured I'm gonna, it I'm out. I'm going to take it, right. <laughs> we had 3,500 people inside and about 5,000 people outside because we did all, I did all the marketing for them. And we marketed it on campus and we went around the city and put up, you know, flyers and so forth. Everybody heard of the mixtape because people were getting the mixtape at the time. So I'm like, oh, this is coming. Oh, I want to see that. Mm -hmm. This is how I made the people go crazy. So there was a side door. There's a main door. I went to the side door, put a security guard there. I said, listen, don't let anybody in here, but open this door. So the music, the music and the energy was amplified outside. So I went to the guys and said, listen, I need y'all to do the craziest dunks ever. Whatever you can do, just dunk. Just try stuff because the crowd's going to go crazy. So they started doing that. And the people outside, you could hear the crowd going, <sighs> like it was just crazy. So if you're outside, you're a little kid, you're like, oh my God, what's going on in there? Right. They can't see it though. So the anticipation was everything. The game went off crazy. Matter of fact, I remember the Atlanta sent police helicopters because it was like, what is going on down there? 
the black people outside together, not outside, fi- not fighting or rioting. We was outside, <laughs> right. not, you know what I'm saying? Not doing nothing crazy. Really, that's dope. So the next year, we had to move it to a bigger venue, which was Morehouse. They had that's the first year they had the tour bus. They wrapped the tour bus. I said, mm, watch this. So I called up some uh, some young ladies I know, you know, and we put them in and one shirts, tied it in a knot above their <laughs> belly button, put them on the to- on the tour bus, and let them drive down Peachtree, and hand out flyers and mixtapes. So when the game came the next day at Morehouse, it was sold out. And they might have had six or seven thousand people outside that couldn't get in. So now, me marketing, understanding guerrilla marketing, hip hop marketing, you've raised the level, you know. So it had to go to Phillips Arena. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So it kept growing, but they should have kept it small. They should have kept it to the point where when you think about what Nike does with Jordans, when they have their exclusive Jordans, they're not gonna release two million pair. They're gonna release. 200,000. Yeah. And if you got it, you got it. If you don't, you don't. But the anticipation of the next Jordan release had people camping out. Yep. Because I used to camp out. For some Jordans, I was camping out. (laughs) What? So that's what I wanted to do. And I tried to build that culture based on other things. Like Hot Sauce as a person, as a character, um, I had to find someone that was reflective of what he was doing, but what other sport was comparative to streetball? And I said, extreme sports. Mm. So I looked at Tony Hawk. Tony Hawk had so many things outside of just skateboarding. Tony Hawk had the Boom Boom Hunk Jam, which was um, an extreme sports tour. So I said, we're going to do a tour. So I created Legends of the Blacktop, um, the killer crossover tour starring hot sauce. I put my own money behind it. I found players, went from city to city. We do like 75 cities a year when the and one tour wasn't going on. And I thought I was doing something great. I was making a ridiculous amount of money. <laughs> but and one was looking like, what's he doing? Well, the problem is I came to you guys and I said, hey, why don't y'all support us and do a tour, help us do this tour while you guys aren't touring because we only toured in the summertime. They didn't like that. You know. Felt like you were trying to branch off and do your own thing. Well, and... at first they didn't care. But then when they saw the popularity of it, <laughs> and Hot Sauce was gaining all the popularity, you had other players assuming that I was trying to poison their situation. Well, I was like, no. I'm a manager. I'm a business manager. I'm a business person. I have business acumen. I have relationships. I'm going to create some. I'm putting my own money behind it. He got popular. Very popular. To the yeah. point where he probably was the most popular player on the tour. He wasn't the best player, but he was the most popular player because of all the things we did outside of that. We did the video games, we did the movies, we did um, music videos, you know, and it was always an assumption that I was poison. But of course, the corporate entity would say, I'm a poison because I'm blowing up this player and they're not blowing him up. And I actually read the contracts. (laughs) I actually pulled out a dictionary and was like, in perpetuity, what's that word mean? That means mm. forever? <laughs> forever? You want his rights forever? And I'm like, no. I would strike words out of the contract like that. And they were like, damn it. Right. But I read the contract, which is you talk about rappers getting into bad deals and people getting yeah. into bad deals when they won't do the smallest bit of research or whatever. I did that. So Sauce was his own entity. He was allowed to do his own things. And a lot of N1 guys, they didn't even own their name. They would sign them and say, well, we have the right to market and use your likeness and so your your NIL, your name, image, and likeness mm. in perpetuity. Dang. Well, Hot Sauce was different because I actually did some business behind it. So I was hated because of that. Were other players interested in working with you after seeing what you did for Hot Sauce? Or I had a few of them. Okay. I had a bunch of them. Um, I actually brought players... Oh, I would go around and find players and actually uh, we play on our tour and we would mold them, teach them how to play well on the tour. So I had Baby Shack, I had Silk, I had Springs, I had 50, I had Spider, I had um, Flash, uh, Sick With It played with us. He was one of the first year guys. I didn't necessarily find him, but he was on the tour initially and he played and we kind of groomed the system with him. AO played with me a bunch of times. 
um, Escalade play with us. Uh, so there's a bunch of guys that I actually brought on and helped mold them. Um, the Black Widow, mm. you know what I'm saying? He was one of the guys that, he was a New York legend already, but he was one of the guys, his first and one game, I was reaching out to him while he was in Bakersfield. He actually went to Bakersfield. Um, he went to Bakersfield. You the, Cal State. Cal Bakersfield. State Bakersfield. Yeah. But he didn't play or whatever. Something happened. But he was out there, and I'm trying to reach out to him like, yo, come back. You should be in this and one thing. He's like, man, I'm trying to play real basketball. So then in the summertime, he came <laughs> to one of the games, and he couldn't get in, but he was asking for me. So a security guard, hey, Mark, somebody's back door looking for you. I ran back there. I'm like, Ali Mo, the Black Widow, what's up? He's like, yo, can I get in? I was like, you can get in if you play. He was like, well, I'll play, but I got to be able to get my family in too. I was like, say less. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So we got him in through the back door. Of course, we had extra gear, shoes, uniforms, whatever. We suited him up. He played. It was crazy. That built the relationship with Anne One. They eventually signed him and so forth. That's another story. But he was amazing. 